0: Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. I am your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is brought to you by the Career Hub from Goslin Martin Associates. As always, thank you for listening. We do appreciate it. And today, we're pleased to welcome Shay Rankhorn to the High Reliability Podcast. Shea is probably a familiar name to many of you. Shea is the vice president of facilities management at Quorum Health in Brentwood, Tennessee. Shea has accountability over biomed, facilities, real estate, construction, and compliance for this 21-hospital system, quite large. Shea's healthcare trajectory has followed the classic track. He obtained his electrician's license in 1996, and from there he Mm -hmm. began his career journey from tick technician to vice president, but he had stops at director, market director, system director, and senior director along the way. Shea has worked for healthcare systems in both Alabama and Tennessee. Many of you may know that Shea is also the president of the American Society of Healthcare Engineering, commonly called ASHI. Shea will hold that position for another couple of months, up until January 1st of 2023, He's a busy guy, as you could probably imagine, between his presidential responsibilities and having oversight for 21 hospitals. Shea has been involved with regional and national engineering societies for just about 20 years, starting with the Tennessee Healthcare Engineering Society and then expanding nationally with ASHI. Shea has achieved his SASHI, his CHFM, his CHS, CHC, CHSP, CHEP, and that's the last C, so I, I kind of surprised myself by getting through all that. Shay, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining.
1: Thanks, Peter. Good to be with um, you.
0: Thank you. My pleasure. We've been trying to uh trying to get Shay on, but with the busyness, uh it was difficult, but we got him. So we, we appreciate it. let me ask you, Shay, you know, as I was just reading all that, how would you how would you describe your last year or two? Relative to obviously, we overlay it with COVID and all, but also relative to leadership positioning nationally with Ashi, culminating in the president, your accountability expanded within your healthcare system. How have you juggled all that, and what has the last, just say two years, been like for you?
1: Well, that's quite the question. <laughs>
0: um. That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, so definitely COVID had its impacts Uh, uh, in the last two years. I've changed jobs from uh, one company to another right in the middle of COVID and actually got COVID during the move to the new job. So that was interesting. Plus, at the same time, being president-elect that year um, and all the preparation that goes into the year that you are president, Uh, All the conference planning and all that happens in that year before trying to move a family and buy a home and help my wife get a job and get the boys in school. So there was there was a lot going on. And of course, you're trying to keep 21 hospitals ready for compliance surveys from various uh, authorities having jurisdiction and trying to set up systems and processes because that's what I've always been about. Um, get plugged into a local church and begin to make friends. So, lots going on, a uh, lot of fun, uh, very, very busy, as you said. Uh, but uh, I just, I love what I do. You know, there's a saying that uh, find something you enjoy to do, you'll never work a day in your life. And mm-hmm. healthcare facilities management is just my thing. So, um, yes, it's been very busy, uh, challenging to overcome all the challenges with COVID both personally and professionally, but at the same time, because I love what I do every day, it's, it's not work. It's just, uh, it's something I'm thrilled to be able to do.
0: Oh, great. How long did, uh, how long did COVID keep you down for Shay?
1: I was one of the not worst cases, but I was a pretty bad case. I was down for 18 days Oh wow! Um, and it took me about a year and a half to finally get over the last lingering effects. How did um, okay. you,
0: you know, you, you talk about everything you did. How did you, like, how did you prioritize? Or, you know, you had all of these demands that are on you at once between family, professional, professional volunteer, and there's all expectations of you, you know, moving into a new community. Everything. <clears throat> how did you, how'd you keep your balance? How did you prioritize? And, were your different constituencies that you had to keep pleased, were, were, they, were they helpful in the effort?
1: Uh, well, the first how is making sure that I make time for God every morning. It gets my head on straight, my heart right, and that allows me to then sit down and do the same type of devotion with my organization of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've been fortunate to hire good people. So, uh, the ability to be able to delegate and trust but verify has served me well. I've been fortunate that the folks that I've hired actually uh, are as passionate about it as I am. So, uh, I don't have to micromanage them. They pretty much just, I hand them something, they run off and take care of it and come back and show me the finished product. So, that makes my job a lot easier. I couldn't have done it without my support staff. And the same is true at Ashley. Um, a lot of people don't realize all the work that ASCII staff does. And, you know, I have Tina Morton, for example. She is my liaison with ASCII staff and she makes sure that I have stuff when I'm supposed to have it and where I'm supposed mm-hmm. to have it. And then I'm where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and uh, she she really was the glue that held me together from an ASCII president standpoint on the ASCII staff. And, then, and, of course, finally, it's having my wife. Um, Brenda has supported and believed in me for over 35 years, and uh, it just gives you the strength and the fortitude to keep going on when you have someone that's got your back.
0: Mm. Very good. You talked about, you just mentioned the word passion when you were, you know, hiring employees mm-hmm. and that your passion they have the same passion as you. And, you know, we talk about in our role in the recruiting world, if you find the people who are passionate, then those are people who are usually gonna stick well in healthcare facilities management, because I think that's what separates people from just a job versus kind of what you've described as a vocation. Is there mm-hmm. a, and, and, and passion can be somewhat amorphous too. I mean, you, you ask somebody if they have passion, well, yeah, sure I do. But how do you how do you define passion and how do you identify passion in the people you are interviewing before you know them, you know, when you, you're looking to join the team, how do, you, how do you determine if they have that passion you need?
1: Um, how do I define passion?
0: Yeah, how do you define it, and then how do you determine if people have it when you're hiring them?
1: Well, I'm not sure I always use the word passion. Sometimes I call it drive. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've always said for years that uh, if you can find me someone with drive, and attention to detail, I can teach them everything they need to know about healthcare facilities management. But those are two things that you either have or you don't. Mm-hmm. And that's not critical of those who don't. But mm-hmm. to be successful, as you said, in healthcare facilities management, those two things are key elements. So drive uh as you start uh interviewing people, you start asking questions about what they've accomplished and how they how they accomplished and as they begin to explain in detail you get a sense from the the timber of their voice and from their body language just that passion comes through and when they talk about mm-hmm. those things it's, it's self-evident mm-hmm. uh and that's what you're looking for as opposed to somebody who talks to you back in a monotone and says yeah we accomplished this but now it's not to say that they're not some people who don't interview well but are still good at their job. But if you're really looking for that star, you're looking for that person that really wants to come out of their chair to get you to envision what it was that they were doing and how impactful it was to those around them.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's um, it's interesting you say that, talking about the timber of their voice and coming out of the chair and getting you excited. Because, you know, as I think back to some of, you know, our – Recruiting jobs. Sometimes that's the feedback we'll get. You know, the candidate X was really good. They answered the questions well. They have the experience we were looking for, or we are looking for, but they didn't have that intangible. You know, that excitement to the voice, the variety of tone, the ability. It was just you know, monotone. So you're exactly correct on that. And that's. You know, I wonder. Wonder if people always understand that or realize that it's, as you said, it's nobody's fault, but they're also looking for that excitement and voice variation and kind of the, you know, the, the ability to motivate and move others. It's, it's really a critical, it's a critical factor.
1: It is, you know, another question I ask is what their view on life is, you know, what's their outlook on, on all of humanity uh, a lot of times that will reveal to you um, the type of person they are. Are they a cup half full or a cup half empty type right. person? You know, and all those things count in towards where that person's going to fit on your team, uh, or if they're even a good fit to begin yeah. with.
0: Yeah. I, I, that's an interesting question. Do you, and you may not, but do you remember the is there a response? Is there a strange response or is the response that somebody gave you to that question that that has stuck with you or that you've never forgotten?
1: Um, there's a funny one. Um, yeah. I was interviewing for a lieutenant for security, the second in command, and uh, this fellow came in and he was quite large fellow, about six foot eight, uh, 300 pounds. And uh, I'll learn that later, and I'll explain why. But um, (laughs) I had to go get another chair. I had to go get another chair because my chair had arms on it, and he couldn't fit in the chair. He was touching And so I got a different chair. And Yeah, we were sitting there talking, and I asked him some of these same questions. And I always had a question I like to ask. I said, you know, you're going to be working in security. You've been doing this a while. Um, Tell me about a time you had a difficult customer and how you handled it. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because he sat there and got just the slightest bit of a smile, not a true smile, but you know where they're trying hard not to smile. (laughs) And he said, sir, I don't mean to come across as, as proudful or anything like that, but usually when I walk in a room, I don't have difficult customers.
0: I can walk (laughs) in (laughs) and I said, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. We
1: hardly ever had any issues when he walked in the room, but he 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 had a real passion for making sure of the safety of of people, and that came across. And how he talked about the efforts he went to and his rounding and get, uh, building relationships with the people there at work. So all that came out. But it, that was a really funny response, sir. Yeah, I really don't <laughs> have. <laughs>
0: That's That's funny, because yeah, you wouldn't have necessarily thought that, but once he says it, you're like, Yeah, you gotta be right, right? You're six eight, three hundred pounds. <laughs> so that was a let's No, I'm sorry.
1: That was about the time that Arena football had come out, and he was actually a tight end on Arena Football League. Oh really? So that's huh. why he,
0: <laughs> How did he So how did he arena football and you said uh yeah. safety and was, security. Uh, How did which what did he did he uh play football so on the side yeah, or They or? didn't
1: play very well? They didn't pay very well, <laughs> so he would work for me during the day, go to practice at night, and then they would play on the weekend. So he might <laughs> did ever
0: go to any games?
1: Uh no, not at the time. <laughs> I was covered up busy, but yeah.
0: But he he, nice. he gave me
1: a funny answer.
0: Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. So let's look at uh let's look at your Ashy experience for a bit, if you don't mind, Shay. You've been Ashy president for the last year. What's that experience like to be the Ashy president?
1: Hmm. Well, it's it's definitely not what you would imagine. It's the experience of a lifetime to be sure. It's the highlight of my career. Um and it's extremely humbling especially if you know my beginnings to be elected and serve the industry and our society in this way. And and, uh, it's been quite um, an eye opener as to the totality of all that Ashie does. I mean, you know it when you're on the board, but then when you're president and you're having to make sure all those things happen, it really gives you that um, 100,000 foot view. And you Mm -hmm. begin to realize just, the totality of all that ASHE does to serve our profession. Um, the lat, you know, the, again, like I said earlier, the majority of the work happens the year you're president elect, you're planning the conference, you're getting all the speakers lined up and all that stuff. So really it's a, a ramp up in the year that you're president elect. And then the year that you're president, it's mostly um, overseeing the board meetings, ensuring that the committees are set up and moving forward leading an executive team meeting every week and then a lot of speaking engagements um, which i enjoy doing um and then the other cool thing is because you're president uh you get to go and represent uh, ASHIE at other organizations like ASHRAE, american society for heating refrigeration air conditioning and National Fire Protection Association annual meeting and our related group the Canadian Healthcare Engineering Society where I'm headed this weekend. Huh. So uh it's you get nice. to do some pretty cool stuff too. Yeah. Um, where's
0: where's the Canadian Healthcare Engineering Society? Is it their conf- is it their conference?
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's their version of ashi um uh, their annual it's in Toronto Sunday through Wednesday, so Nice. Um Yeah, you- it,
0: you alluded to it in in your answer, but, you know, one of the things that interested me, you just said it's not what you would imagine um, being the Ashy president. W- what is it about the role that makes it not what you would imagine?
1: Well, I don't know. It's just my viewpoint. Others may have sure. a different viewpoint of it, but, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, it's uh, – um, You know, it's a position of power or glory, um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, it gets you name recognition. It does do the last thing, but what it really is, is an awesome responsibility Mm -hmm. to help coordinate all that we have going on, which again, I said, is we could take a whole podcast just to talk about the totality of everything it touches. Yeah. Uh, and to know that you're helping guide that and, you know, uh, put in uh, measurable goals to find out the progress and then holding people to that, to being able to mentor people on the board and encourage them that one day they could f- follow in your footsteps. So there's a, an onus of responsibility to walk with character and integrity so that mm-hmm. they would want that sometime in the future. You know, one of the things I brought in was a modified form of Robert's Rules of Order to the board meetings, Um, and that really uh, that really transformed the productivity of the board meetings because now everyone had a chance to speak. Um, We stayed on topic, and we actually found we got more work done than before when it was a little bit more open and collegial. um, Bringing in The semi-rigidity of Robert's Rules of Order, and we didn't adopt them all, but it really brought a productivity to it. And actually, several of them told me it brought a passion because now they knew they were going to get a chance to speak and everything was going to get covered. And it's really rewarding to say, hey, we've set aside a day and a half for a board meeting and three-fourths of the way through the first day, you're done. And you can really start then talking about big picture stuff, so just being able to do things like that is very rewarding. Um, yeah. and I want to encourage people, you know, that might not think of themselves as quote unquote presidential material that, yeah, you can follow in my footsteps. If I can come from where I did, then anybody can do it. If they just want to put in the time and the effort and they have the passion for it.
0: No, no, it's well said. And you know, it's the meetings, uh, granted, it's just Jack and I, so we don't meet a lot. And I've been, so, I mean, well, we do meet a lot, but it's the two of us. So, and you really can't put rules of order when Jack is speaking. But I, you know, I was just thinking back as you were talking about that. One of the, you know, when I used to work in healthcare, meet, and especially these days, because there's so many meetings, meetings could be such a drain on time. And, and you know mm-hmm. that everybody's sitting there, they really don't want to be there. You have people coming in late, you have people leaving early, it, it can be such a waste of time. And we try to do that at our organization. Just put a little structure around them. Because really it's it's for everybody's good to do something like that. And the improvement is tangible.
1: It is. And you know, a lot of times uh because we've transformed to more of a collegial type workplace, we don't tend to be as quick to hold people accountable. Yeah. And yeah. so so by so by doing this. I set the president-elect, Gordy Howey, as our sergeant-at-arms, if you will. So he tracked who it was that had put their nameplate up wanting a chance to speak and made sure that they spoke in the order that they put their nameplate up. He uh, made sure we went through our list of board members and checked off that everyone had had a chance to speak on the subject before we either took a vote or we moved on to another subject. And it just, it was very empowering, even to the people, it was their first year on the board, and they thought they were just going to sit back and idle, all of a sudden to realize, you know, if I don't (laughs) raise my name tag, they're going to call on me. So I need to get involved.
0: (laughs) I'm glad I didn't have you as a teacher when I was in school. (laughs) Put my head down behind the person in front of me so you're not seen. But, you know, that brings something up. I hadn't really thought of it before, Shane. I guess you wouldn't, you know, it, like we are moving towards a collegial collaborative society where everybody has, you know, everybody's opinion matters. But yet I, I never thought about that kind of in the context of what that would do to meetings and trying to put some structure in, into it to kind of avoid some of that pitfall because really it's a best practice to do so. And that that's really an interesting balance that you just spoke to.
1: Yeah. And it's funny, when we first did it, we had some people who were pushing back, you know, because
0: uh, mm. they
1: thought it was too formal. Yeah. And we, others were like, how's that going to work? You know, I don't understand. But after just a little bit of time of working at it, um, now everybody really looks forward to it. Like I said, but and we enjoy the work that we do. Um and we feel like that we really can focus on the problem issues. We we make so much time up versus what we've planned that when we get to an issue, we know we need to spend more time on. We have that bandwidth to do it, and not feel like we're bouncing up against the next item. So it's really been quite cool to work through this and have it be successful. And I can tell you, I shared it with another society, the um, the uh, Firestop. Uh, Contractors Association, and they just put it in and practiced it last week. And the president called me and was just overjoyed about the difference (laughs) it made in the productivity of their meetings.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, so often I think we're looking, you know, people are looking for like the, the grand slam or the home run as opposed to kind of the single, you know, the, the thing that is really, you might not think, it's not very sexy, but it it transforms things and this is one of those items, right, where you know, you practice it and and you see these improvements. Sure. So, how do you Shay, how do you balance all that? I mean, you know, when you just said you meet what, weekly with the executive committee. I was like, "Wow, weekly. That's 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 a commitment." I mean, that's 52 meetings plus everything <laughs> else. But how do you balance it all between your 21 hospitals, your ashy responsibilities, It's uh, it never ends for you. What do you do? How do you balance?
1: Well, you have to be able to lead without directing. Uh, you know, I talked about hiring good people. Um, that's, that's one way is that you know when you hand things off that you can trust that they're going to uh, take care of it. And uh, I have some wonderful staff that work for me or with me. Um, I don't like the term boss. Uh, Mm -hmm. I prefer to say I'm their leader. You know, the old saying, uh, boss says go, a leader says let's go. (laughs) And uh, I definitely don't ever want to ask my staff to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Um, And the same is true with whether it's the Ashy staff or the board. Um, They come committed to the success of what we're doing. And so it's easy uh, when you can explain to people the why of what we're doing, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek, Um, then they get on board because they understand the reason behind it and all of a sudden you have this engaged and passionate workforce that wants to see the same success that you do. So being able to cast a vision and get people to buy into it enables ensures that they step up and share that load uh it also helps that I don't sleep but about five hours a night.
0: <laughs> I was gonna ask you how have. much you slept. <laughs>
1: so really five I never you have. can get by on five, huh? Yeah, wow. sometimes six, but
0: uh what time do you go to bed?
1: Um uh, between eleven and twelve and I'm usually up between four and six, just depending on wow. what time I go to bed. Uh and it doesn't matter how late I stay up or how early I go to bed, and my internal clock just says, Okay, you're done and my mind starts going and yeah. since I love what I do, it's like, okay, let's jump out of bed and go do it. Um, and and the variety helps a lot too. Uh, the variety of my, my job and all the different departments that I'm responsible for, as well as the variety within ashi it's not like I'm sitting on a line, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I'm not wired where I could just keep putting a widget on a something every day over and over and over again. I Mm -hmm. I thrive on variety. So that gives me that motivation to be able to uh, continue to juggle all that. The people interaction. I love uh, trying to share things with people and help them be more successful. Mentoring is a big passion of mine, whether it's professionally or personally. Um, So, again, all this stuff gives me energy to keep going. Uh, As far as uh, balancing it, again, you have to make sure you make time for yourself, both spiritually and mentally and emotionally and physically, so that you have time to organize those things, get your head on straight and say, okay, here's the priorities for the day, and then what can I hand off to people who are capable and have the bandwidth, and what do I need to keep for myself, and you just constantly adjust that both each day and then throughout the day as things come up. It does get a little easier as I've gotten older because some of this stuff comes to me naturally now. Whereas before, I might have to say, go look a code up or sit down and write an article uh, with a bunch of study and thought through it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now I haven't done it this long. A lot of that stuff just rolls out, so it's not as difficult had I done this, say, at 35 instead of 53
0: yeah no are you as you approach the end of of your term, how are you feeling? Are you looking forward? To, are, you, are you looking forward? Are you tired are you, or are you not even thinking about it because it's still only <laughs> September 16th and you got another two and a half months to go? You know it's a funny question.
1: it, it It's funny you should ask that I should say. We came up a few of us, uh, the pre former presidents and, and myself, we were talking at a break at annual and I said and only one person was there that I knew of that had done it twice <laughs> and I said you know were you glad to get done you know would you ever do it again and the majority of them are like no I don't think I'd ever do it again you know it was a lot of hard work and you know I'm in a different stage of my life and so on and so forth and I said well I'm kind of in that same boat in that I've thoroughly enjoyed it but I have uh some Business opportunities going forward that might take my focus away somewhat from the core focus I have today. And so I think it's the right thing at the right time for the right reason. Hmm. And so I've just really I'm trying to enjoy it to its fullest while it's here, knowing that it is winding down. But at the same time, feeling good about the fact that whether it's how the meetings have been done, or the mentoring that I've tried to done, do with Gordy and others on how to lead and, and empower and, and cast vision uh, to uh, teaching some of them how to be a better speaker. The power of the pause, for example. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand it takes the brain three to five seconds to take in the last sentence you just said. So having a pregnant pause, as I call it, is actually helpful in ensuring your point gets crossed. But too many people, when they're speaking, want to run through it like they're at the Indy 500. <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> That's kind of I like and, it, <laughs> and so they but, end up they end up with a rushed speech, and they sound rushed, and people only get about half of what they say because they said it so quickly.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to work. Uh, Both of my sons, one of them, he's a freshman in college now, and my other, he's he's still only a sophomore in high school, and my daughters are fine with it, but my boys talk so fast, and it's fine. You know, we're at home, but I'm just trying to tell them, you gotta, you have to slow down. Nobody can understand. It's funny. I understand my youngest now. My wife will say, how do you know what he's saying? I was like, I just, (laughs) I've got his language (laughs) down now, but let me ask, have you always been comfortable with public speaking?
1: That's an interesting question too. Um, I don't know if comfortable is the right word. Uh, I first started public speaking when I was sixteen years old, so um, I would have to think really, really far back. I know that there are times that I was nervous uh, early on just because you know I was speaking to people who are older than me or who I knew knew way more than me. but again, as I've gotten older. Most of this stuff just rolls off and I've been speaking for 30 plus years now. So uh, it's actually a thrill to step on stage and take the challenge of being able to cast a vision of whatever it is I'm Mm. speaking out about and see that connect with the crowd and see their feedback either on their face or by clapping or I really like audience interaction whenever the the audience is small enough. I'll get down and walk yeah. through the crowd just so yeah. they feel connected. So, yeah, for me, it's actually something that uh, you kind of, it's just it's, it's both. It's uh, stressful and that you know you want to do something that people are going to go, oh, yeah, that was great. So there's that stress of trying to do your very best. But then there's that thrill that's coming to know that you're going to empower people and encourage people and give them tools they need to be more successful. So it's it's like you're uh, bracing for it and running towards it at the same time. I'm really not sure how else to explain that.
0: Yeah, that's what I said. it's funny. I don't. I I like public speaking as well. But you know, you always have a little of those nerves beforehand. Um, I think it's always natural. But I always, you know, you're my age, I'm 55, you're 53. I remember, I've never forgotten going back to the Brady Bunch. And I remember, this is going to be politically (laughs) correct now, I'm sure. But I remember when my when the dad, Mike, was talking to one of the kids, just about public speaking, and he said, mm-hmm. "I just envision everybody sitting there in their underwear looking at me, and that makes me feel comfortable when I'm speaking." So I've never forgotten that. Now I'm not sitting. I'm not imagining people in their underwear sitting there looking no. at me. But from the 1970s and the Brady Bunch, that's what Mike was telling the kids, and I've never, I've never forgotten that yeah. advice. So I, I don't follow that. I advice. have a little,
1: <laughs> I have a little bit different approach that I try to teach folks, and that's to. Find someone in the crowd that they know, if if it's a crowd like Ashy, and speak to that one person. Yeah, or if they check. don't know anyone, then find, some, find an object in the middle of the crowd that you can look at that doesn't have a face and speak to that object so that what they're looking and doing is not impacting you. But for me, I enjoy engaging face-to-face with each person mm-hmm. to determine, am I connecting? Do I need to change what I'm saying? Is there a look of confusion on their face and if so then I'll stop and back up and well let me say that another way until I get that um connection from you know the majority of the crowd and again it depends on the size of the crowd if I'm speaking to 3000 people that's a little harder but uh, most of the venues are 100 or so people so it's it's fairly easy to do that
0: yes yes well talking about venues of 3000 people and talking about you know trying to connect with folks when you're speaking with them and enjoying it i think as i told you when i sent you this initial email you know when i was at the annual held up here in boston which was was outstanding you were giving your speech and it was your wednesday speech so it wasn't the monday when i think you were welcoming right. everybody but you were giving the wednesday speech and you you mentioned something you know you, you alluded to the fact that, and you just said the two, you, you never would have imagined yourself being the president of Ashi, being at the VP level. You said as a teenager, you didn't think you would amount to much, and those were your own words. And here you mm-hmm. are, you end up as a healthcare VP, you end up as a hashi president, more importantly, you end up a good person, um, which is better than any of those titles. To the extent you feel comfortable sharing that, Shay, what what was that journey like for you starting as a teenager?
1: Hmm. Well, um, there's a little bit before that, uh, my family, um, uh, on, on my mom's side, especially was extremely poor. My father's side would be the lower part of middle class. Mm-hmm. And, um, so when my parents got married, they didn't really have much. And my dad, uh, went off to Vietnam right after that, um, and he came back addicted to alcohol and drugs and mm-hmm. then went on. Uh, Mom and dad divorced when I was 10 and uh, he had a lot of issues with Agent Orange effects and those type of things. So I was shipped back and forth between two different locations. And because I would go to school with holes in my jeans and, you know, the cheapest tennis shoes possible, you get a lot of that white trash mentality uh, mm-hmm. from the other kids. And just seeing what my family, what they had grown up to be and do, I just assumed that I was going to follow that same road. And uh, so it, I just never had any idea that I could even grow up and be an electrician, much hmm. less anything else. It just wasn't in my imagination. So, uh, you know, uh, to then when I was 16... Uh, I was attending church with my mom, and I um, began a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he completely transformed my personality and my outlook. Um, I was a uh, low C and D student, and within weeks, I became a straight-A student. And, you know, my intellect didn't change, but my outlook and my approach to life changed. Um, and people would come and ask me what's different, you know um, and I would share with them what had happened, and that has guided me through my entire life um and knowing where I came from and what my trajectory should have been, whether it was my friends from grade school and junior high and where I see them at now, you know uh my best friend's actually been in prison three times um uh, <laughs> You know, he's not my best friend today, but he was back then. And I was doing everything as Kevin was doing. So that was a trajectory I was on. So then to think that today I am where I am, doing what I'm doing, it's really a pinch me moment every day. Um, even, you know, even my own siblings are addi- have addiction issues uh, and trauma issues. So for me to, I'm reminded daily as I care for my mom now that she's older and see what my siblings are not able to do, um, Hmm. it just reminds me every day that I'm so blessed to be where I am doing what I'm doing and being able to give back. You know, Um, I didn't have a father figure because mom and dad uh, divorced and, and my dad was not that great a father figure anyway. But uh, God sent people into my life who stepped in to be that father figure and taught me ethics and work <laughs> and in life. They shared what a husband and a father and a worker should be. Um, one of my first uh, ones that was actually my boss, but uh, he was a mentor. He showed me that of how to be a leader instead of a boss, to believe in others and invest in others for their benefit, because you reap the dividends as they succeed, you succeed. Wow. and so every day I remember here's where I came from, and it helps keep me humble and grateful for all that God's blessed me with well
0: oh, thank thank you for sharing let me let me can I ask a follow up on that if you don't mind um so you're sixteen, you're in church with your mom, you begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. did that happen um you, you know, like you, you watch movies, you, you see all different. You see all different variations of how that occurs, yeah. right? For you, how did that occur? Because it does sound like it was pretty immediate. If you were able to transition from like a CD student to a A student, how how, how long did that transition take? What was that like?
1: Well, it was. You got to understand. By the time I was fifteen, because of my dad's influence, he was also became a drug dealer. By the time I was fifteen, I was doing drugs, drinking alcohol. I mean, pretty much, I, I did things, I'm embarrassed to say, that most adults will never do. I, mean, I don't want to get into that, but, sure. you know, then my mom moved across country to, to a new job, and I had to join a new school, and for whatever reason, instead of joining that part of the school uh, student body, I met a neighbor, uh, who lived next door and he's like, Hey, you need to come join the football team with me. And hmm. so I went and joined the football team and, and made the team and we actually went to state championship that year.
0: Huh? What, so what state were you in, Shay?
1: I was in Washington state, uh, and okay. North of Spokane. And, uh, you know, um, uh, nothing was wrong per se, uh, in fact, you would say everything was right. I had a girlfriend, you know, doing well in school, in the, the sports of school. I was still barely passing, but I was just sitting in church. And, the, you know, I felt uh, God speaking to me and saying, look, you've tried everything the world has to offer, both on the good and the bad side for someone your age. And, you know, the uh, salvation story about why we need Jesus in our life and what he accomplished When are you going to give me the opportunity to show you what you're really looking for to fill that hole in your heart? And so, I mean, the preacher wasn't even preaching on that. He was preaching. I don't even know what he was preaching on, but I just got down on my knees in the pew and talked to God, like I'm talking to you and said, okay, you know, you're right. I'm not happy. I'm, you know, I'm still hunting and searching for that high that doesn't go away. And I found that whenever I gave my heart to Christ, um, he just filled me with a peace and joy that transformed me very quickly. I actually resolved not to tell anyone because you've seen those people that they get saved and like a month later, uh, you know, they fall right back into what they were doing before. And I wanted to make sure this quote unquote took. Hmm. And uh, and people actually began to come to me, as I said, and ask me what's different. And it was just that I had this personal relationship with the son of God that just transformed me. It it made me realize that I don't have to fight to find peace and joy. I can have it all the time. And with that, it, it gave me that passion, that desire to want to be the best I can be, uh, for him and gratitude for all that he's done for me. And it transformed my grades. It transformed how I got along with people. Um, And it's guided me through my entire life, um, both in areas of integrity and opportunities to try to pass that on to other people, uh, whether in word or in deed, um, because I believe I have to live it out. I can't just speak it out. (laughs) So uh, I look for every opportunity to try to make a difference in people's lives, whether it's spiritually or or uh, material possessions or just that encouragement, they need to know that they're not alone.
0: Hmm. Powerful. You mentioned just, you mentioned that you had started, when I asked you the public speaking question, you said that you'd started public speaking at 16. Is this how you started public? Is this what you started public speaking? I meant to ask you that Um, follow-up. Where were you public speaking at 16? Okay.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I, that's actually also not too much later, about six months later, I met, who would become my wife and she and her brother were inviting me to a, uh, teen, uh, church service that they had put together that was wholly run by the teens. And, um, they were needing somebody to, uh, you know, talk about God. You know, I don't, I don't know that we called it preaching, but just, you know, bring something that God was talking to you about. And I said, well, I'll say something. And then, uh, the church found out about it and, they were praying over me one day and said, "Hey, we feel like that this is your calling to to speak and and to teach people." And so at sixteen, I preached my first sermon in front of about one hundred twenty wow. people.
0: Wow! And uh, that's awesome. <laughs>
1: that's,
0: that's, man, that's pretty good. A lot of sixteen-year-olds didn't do that. That's wow. I'll tell you. So <laughs> this is really a kind of an awkward transition, right? We've you've just been talking it's about. Okay that, but uh, how did you, so you're 16, you're saved, you're you're in school, you're doing well, how did you find your way into, you you started as an electrician, what were you thinking careers at that point, were you thinking healthcare, how did you find your way into healthcare?
1: Well, that's a little bit of a story too. Um, (laughs) I, I graduated high school having taken a mechanics class and was studying for my ASC certification, which is what you need to be an auto mechanic. And, uh, at the same time, one of my mentors had been teaching me, uh, uh electricity cause he was an electrician. So I would uh, work with him and I went on to work him uh, and, as a mechanic for four or five years. And then, uh, an opportunity came where they were building a hospital, uh, in my hometown. And they needed electricians and i thought well i've worked in electrical you know working with my mentor terry i can probably do most of that my dad was also did some electrical work so a little bit of background there as well and so i went and applied for the job and uh got hired and for whatever reason began to find favor with the superintendent and before i knew it i was running the fire alarm system wiring and and (laughs) He found I could read blueprints and, you know, just one thing led to another. And uh, so about eight months into it, I was walking across a job site one day and ran into the director of plant operations at the hospital that we were replacing. And, uh, you know, I said, hey, I've been wanting to talk to you about a job when we get done here because I don't want to move on with the electrical company. And he said, well, that must be God. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I just came out of the job trailer and was talking to your superintendent and asked out of the 35 electricians he had, who would he recommend me hire at the end of the job? And I said, he said your name and was going to get me your contact information. He said, in fact, if you had your uh, refrigerant uh, certification, I would hire you today. So I whipped out my refrigerant certification. Remember, I was an (laughs) automotive mechanic, so I had to have it for automotive. And I said, when do I start? <laughs> wow. And uh, wow. so two weeks later, I was working in healthcare as an engineering tech. And uh, then when he realized the wide and varied construction background I had, he started putting me in uh, in charge of planning, designing, and constructing for the hospital on an extremely small scale. And that just grew. And from there, he uh, began to... Re- uh, recognized me to the corporate office with things, and we had an incident where the controls for the entire hospital went down, and uh, we had to reinstall and re- uh, program the entire control system for that hospital. So over a year, I worked with the corporate office doing that, installing and recommissioning the entire hospital. And again, they saw my drive, my attention to detail, And so when there became an opportunity at another hospital a couple hours away to uh, become a director, they said, hey, we want you to do that. I said, well, I don't know anything about joint commission. I didn't even know the seven plans and all that stuff. And they said, that's okay. We can teach you that. But what we can't teach is drive and attention to detail. So in 2000, I became a director at a small 80-bed hospital down in Pulaski, Tennessee. And from there, just continued to grow and, um, uh, became known for opening new hospitals and building additions and things. And, you know, next thing I know, I wake up one morning and I've got a VP title in front of my name. So. <laughs> That's
0: funny. I it's like not like I went. had a pl- No, you know, it's fine. As it's I'm listening to like you. I
1: had a you- plan. It just, well, you know, God you know, continued we- to help me find favor wherever I went.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, I was going to, you know, I was, I was going to ask you, did you have a plan? And obviously not, but, and as I, as I listened to you talk, I mean, it's almost like, and I mean, from my perspective, you would obviously give your perspective, but from that moment when you were 16, it's almost like your career and your life was kind of not mapped, but it was, it took off and almost in a way, not out of your control because you opened your doors, but. You had some divine help along the way. Is that how you look at how your career has gone from that point, Shay?
1: Absolutely. Even if you just look at what had happened to me before I was saved, my mom and dad divorced when I was 10 and mom moved us to New Orleans, Louisiana and got it because she got a job down there and joined a church. And that church had this mentoring program where that any boy who didn't have a father in his life, they would assign a guy from the church to mentor him for three, six, uh, nine or 12 months at a time. And so different guys signed up to try to mentor me. I I pray and ask for their forgiveness every day for the hell that I put them through. But at the time (laughs) I really resented it. I could tell they were trying to be the dad I didn't have. Yeah. But what I didn't see then that I can see looking back now was in being rotated around through all the different guys in the church, I learned pretty much every single trade that exists before I was 16. Now, how does that help me today? When I'm managing a construction project, I can walk across that project, and I know how that brick's supposed to be set. You know, I know how that beam's supposed to be welded. I know how that sheetrock's supposed to be put up. You know, I know how that wiring's supposed to be run. I know you can't put that smoke detector within three foot of the supply register because... I learned all that stuff and God was preparing me at 10 years old for the job that I have today I hated it then but I'm so thankful (laughs) for it now
0: yeah I would imagine at 10 there's probably a lot of resentment right there's got I mean you're 10 years old you're oh I had so much
1: I was just talking to somebody yesterday I'm trying to remember who I was talking to but I was literally so full of anger and resentment being ripped out of Tennessee down to this mega city, New Orleans, my parents, uh, divorcing just so much anger and resentment in my life that, uh, I was that kid walking down the hallway in school that you would walk on the other side of the hallway. Because if you happen to connect with me, eye to eye, I might just punch you because you looked at me. Hmm. I had so much anger and stuff going on. And, um, so it, it just, that's why I, I I, I don't know how to express on this podcast the transformative power that Christ was and taking this wild child and making me into who I am today. It's it's really unbelievable.
0: Well, it's, um, it's, you, you say that, and you know, see, as you were talking about you know, being the ten year old walking down the hallways in your school, I was thinking of the fifty three year old walking around Ashy putting his hand out and saying hello to everybody and talking to everybody. Just, it's such a, (laughs) it's so jarring, right? Uh, I'm sure it is for you too.
1: Yes, it is. Um, I I had one principal (laughs) brag that told me that he was actually going to put my name on a chair
0: since I spent so much time in his office. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Did you just one, did you, um, when you moved out to Washington state, was that difficult for you to go to that part of the country? I mean, it's, very different on the one one hand yes
1: because i was so far away from family but on the other hand no because i was finally back in the country and you know i'm a country boy at heart you know i love i love the nature you know my wife and i still today a lot of people say, well let's go to the beach you know or let's go visit a city no we want to go find the most remote place out in the country (laughs) we can find that's where (laughs) we find our peace and happiness Sure. So for me, and, uh, moving out there, it was cool because I could, I mean, it's it so much bigger out there. I don't know how to say that different, but you can get out mm-hmm. and walk out from your house and walk for miles and not see a soul. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed all the the wildlife I got to see. And uh, just, i you know, I didn't mind that from that standpoint. I just hated leaving all my friends, you know. Yeah. I hated yeah. being so far from family. But other than that, no, it didn't bother me at all.
0: Um, so this is really going to be a, a boring question to ask, given what you okay. just talked about. But I just feel like I have to ask it only because of you, know, of your, um, of your stature in the industry and, and what you do and what you've done for the last two years. We've talked a lot about on this podcast, where we talk about the future quite a bit. From your perspective, Shay, what concerns you about? healthcare facility management and what excites you about the future so what concerns and excites about the future of healthcare facilities management i told you it was going to be a boring question it's it's really almost like when you're on a tangent when you're in like i'll go back to grade school you get a teacher who might take you off on tangent talking about things other than education and you're always happy about that, then they bring you back into the math class. That's what I just did to you by asking you this question. So (laughs) what what does, I mean, back to the world of healthcare facilities management, what excites you? What concerns you relative to the future?
1: Well, uh, relative to the future, uh, what concerns me is the dwindling profit margin of healthcare. Um, It's not sustainable. Whether you read Becker's or others that comment on the uh, health of healthcare as a business. It's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to remember who I read the other day that in the next five years, they expect there to be 10 or less healthcare systems in the US just because uh, they're either closing or they're consolidating. And, um, and the, it's just uh, you get to a point where the, uh, you wonder. What what's the future look like? Uh, you know, when I got into healthcare, it was pretty much if you got a job in healthcare, you were set for retirement yeah. because there's always healthcare, there's always work to be done. You know, people keep getting sick, but with the transformation of healthcare delivery model to the impact of COVID and literally the aversion to healthcare that's out there now for patients, um, it's really impacted uh, what. What we see that, and then you have aging infrastructure. You add to that, it's you know how do you how do you uh, address uh, the vast majority of the hospitals that are so far behind? It would be like us driving a 1950 era vehicle that's had next to no maintenance, and we wonder why we can hardly make it from point A to point B. Now, not every hospital's that way, but you know I've been doing this for over 25 years, and the majority of them. Are at least somewhat, if not greatly behind and just being maintained, much less buying a new one. And so you add that to the, you know, the current economy, to the inflation that we're dealing with, to the uh, COVID uh, related uh, supply chain issues. Uh, it's like it's a great tsunami coming and you wonder, mm-hmm. how are we going to address all these things and continue to have successful healthcare uh for us as a people. You know, it's not specific to healthcare facilities management, but then right. if you take that and, and micro it down, well all of a sudden you go from limited capital to no capital. You go from holding off on hiring somebody to not ever being able to hire somebody. And then you compound all that with the uh, and it's not specific to to facilities management or even healthcare, but you compound that with the worker shortage. Yeah, and it it can become somewhat dismal to go to work and wonder what tomorrow is going to look like. But what excites me is the fact that uh, as we begin to address these things and look at uh, solutions to still have successful construction projects and to still get work done within healthcare facilities. You see newcomers coming to our field, more minorities, uh, people from other fields. I remember when it was a rare thing to see a female on a construction job site, much less as a, a facility manager. But now I see that and even more. And what's so encouraging is that they bring such fresh ideas and outlook mm-hmm. what we do, a different approach. And that's what we needed. We needed to be shook uh, proverbially by the shoulders and said, hey, you can't <laughs> keep doing the same way same things the same way and expect a different result so i look forward to seeing what the new generations are going to accomplish i look forward to uh, seeing how we answer the call to sustainability and what that looks like Um, i'm excited to be on the cusp of that and i know that as i retire there'll be others who are right in the throes of it and i'm i'm curious i want to look behind the curtain if you will and see just what all these things turn out to be, because i've been I've been um, inspired by that next generation. yeah, they have a different viewpoint on work life balance and they're a little bit more or a lot more engaged in social justice and those type of things, but they bring with that the uh, more of a broad view of the entire work as opposed to the um, blinders that we may have had on to traditional healthcare facilities management. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do.
0: That's really well said. I I like that. Yeah, I like that. Um, And along those lines, Shay, you talked about, you and I have talked before about capital. You just mentioned infrastructure. You control the capital spend for your organization. You control the capital for all the 21 hospitals. Tell our audience how did you how did you become that guy within your organization who controls the capital spend
1: well um first of all i'm not sure the word control would be the word i would use uh, <laughs> yeah. i heavily influence it i heavily Sorry. influence I, it. i'm, I'm not- gonna have
0: you this i'm gonna have you the, the ceo next so just stick around another couple of minutes and i'll elevate you <laughs>
1: but what you know what happened was it was fairly simple again I told you I'm a process and detail person I believe that if you can break apart what you're doing and break it into manageable chunks and then create tracks and processes that you can create a a quicker throughput and manage and control what it is you do whether it's project management or or maintenance or any other uh, process and so as we're going through capital um, And I began to put my input on what I needed from infrastructure and construction and compliance. Um, I began to ask the question, so how do we determine what gets approved and what doesn't? And I couldn't really get a good answer. It's kind of like everybody goes out and throws their um, ideas out. And, you know, and so I brought something that I'd, learned a little bit about when I worked at Ballad, but uh, really brought into the forefront here where I work now. And it was to create a scoring criteria for capital. And so I created a scoring criteria that addressed issues like, is it equipment? And if so, is it end of life, beyond end of life or failed? Is it safety related? Yes or no? Is it are they about to have a compliance survey, you know, joint commission or DNV coming and that, that may influence what we choose to do. Uh, does it have an impact on EBITDA positively or negatively? Mm-hmm. You know, um, different things like that. So we created all these columns I did and gave a numbering scheme to it and then we scored it at the end. And then we resorted all capital based on that score and the next question I asked was, how much capital do we have that we think we're going to generate for this fiscal year? And so they gave me that number. And so I was able to just drag down the totals of the projects as they were resorted until I got to that number and said, OK, here's the cutoff. Everything else below that we're going to have to put off till next year. So we took time. We uh, re- re-looked at all the things that didn't make the cut and made sure there wasn't something there that was just heartburn. And I think we moved one or two things up and moved a couple of things down to make room for them, but that became our capital plan for this year. And then during that same conversation, they came up about cash flow and they said, Well, how do we know when these projects are going to hit and when we're going to have to, you know, put out money for it? So I sat down and worked for a couple of weeks and designed the cash flow model to ensure knowing. And again, I had to go back and ask finance, How much do you think we can generate per quarter? And so as we figured out the amount of capital we could generate, I moved the projects around in the order in which they were approved so that we would hit all of our targets financially and ended up with this cash flow model that uh, became our our guide and our tool all year long for what we do. So now when a project comes through our capital approval program, usually one of the C-suite people who it hits first will reach out to me and go, hey, does that... (laughs) Is this does it. A is it in the plan, and B is this the time we said we were going to approve it? And if my answer no. is no to either one of those things, then they don't approve it unless there's a really good business reason.
0: That's awesome. So I kind of, kind
1: of just <laughs> like everything else in my life, I kind of just fell into it. I found favor and
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I wanted to ask you, and I and I am I'm speaking with Shea Rancorn. Shea is the VP of Facilities Management, Quorum Health in Breadwood, Tennessee. She has accountability for 21 hospitals, biomed facilities, real estate, construction, and compliance. Um, I thank him for his time this morning. It, I, I wanted to ask you a, a final question, Shea, kind of along those lines, you just said you fell into it. How would you, um, how do you describe yourself? Like you're, an in, you're a very interesting guy, right? How do you describe yourself to others? If somebody said, Shea Rancorn, what, how do you describe yourself professionally, personally? Who are you? What are you?
1: Well, first of all, I hope that as as I pass on from this life, that people know that I'm a devoted follower of Christ, number one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then beyond that is somebody who tried to pass along the blessings that he's <laughs> received to everyone around him. Uh, if I can make your life better or someone else's life better than I feel like that I've contributed to uh, what I'm called to do as a Christian. And that is share God's love with everyone I can. And it's not just sharing his love and their need for a Savior, but it's also sharing his love and his desire for what's best for all of us. So I want to lift other people up in the same way that I've been lifted up. You know, you heard me in my Wednesday closing. uh, You know, there are people in my life who not only gave me a hand up, but then they gave me shoulders to stand on, and I my goal my intent is to pass it forward, and to do and be that same thing for everyone that I can.
0: Well, wow. that's powerful. And and I I've lied. One last question: You just talked about kind of the mentorship and the people who lifted you up um, when you needed it. And I know you talked about you named some folks at Ashy and throughout your career. Just a question: Do you think that? Um, like when you were coming up 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and even for me, we were a much more, we were a much more connected society, not with the technologies, mm-hmm. but just face-to-face interpersonal. Correct. Um, you, we just tended that way. And now we're losing some of that because of technology. Um, we're losing some of those relationships, some of that mm-hmm. human interaction that we need. Is that a challenge for you guys at ashi to, to keep that? as it was because it was so beneficial to so many people. Jack would say, you know, if Jack were here, he would talk about all of those people and all those conferences who helped him up. Do you fear we're losing a little bit of that? Not because we're getting older, but because technology and the pace is taking us from, you know, the human collaboration on an interpersonal basis. That's a lot of word salad. I hope it made sense to you. But as you were talking, it made me think about that.
1: Well, as it relates to Ashy, it's certainly a challenge Uh, You have folks below our generation who are less uh, conference oriented and more electronically oriented to their learning Mm -hmm. styles, even to their social styles. Uh, So that is a huge concern. You know, how do we how do we continue to uh, connect? But I have been a huge proponent of us embracing those technologies and finding ways to connect. And that's why, you know, uh, Ashley has stepped up and done that. They have, you know, whether it's YouTube or online learning or whatever the case may be, they've pushed into that. And I'm very pleased to see that they've done that. But secondly, and more importantly, I referred to it earlier, getting the next generation involved in leadership level, Mm -hmm. like the mentoring program that I did this year, both at PDC and at annual, where I had, 30 year old and younger sitting in the board meeting, understanding what goes on at an ASHA board meeting and empowering them to speak at that board meeting and to get engaged. I believe they're the ones who are going to bring their generation along because <laughs> they know how to solve that problem. They know how to speak to their own generation. Yeah. And so yep. for me to try to be the person to solve that would be wrong and, and, and an injustice in my mind. We need to empower them to solve that in a way that they only they know how to do. And I'm excited to see that they're actually doing that already.
0: Great. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's, that makes sense. That makes sense. Shea Rancorn, I appreciate you appearing on the show. I appreciate your honesty. Great discussion. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. My pleasure, sir. This is Peter Martin saying, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you to Shea, our guest. We will be back with another episode of High Reliability. Thanks for listening and have a great day.